Okay, let's stand one more time uh, and read our text and, uh, <clears throat> and finish off, really finishing off chapter 10 of Hebrews. Amazing. We have traveled this far. I'm amazed. I can't believe I made it uh, to this point. You know, it's kind of like these are sort of the Himalayas or whatever you want to call it, but this, is a, this has been a mountain range with many ridges, and we have come now to uh, the end of chapter 10. 10, which prepares us for um, the all-important Hall of Faith in chapter 11, a chapter that I have long uh, desired to preach through and to study through. And please pray for me for chapter 11, would you not? Pray that uh, the Lord would give me insight. I really want to make these sessions, or these sermons rather, uh, very practical, applicable. I really want these sermons out of uh, Hebrews 11 to be life-changing, to be encouraging, uh, so that the people of God in this church would connect themselves to the examples. That's, chapter 11 is all about how we should follow the examples of these godly people. And so I am praying that each of us individually would resonate very strongly with the example of Abraham, the example of Sarah, the example of, of all these great men, men of whom the world is not worthy. That's my prayer. Let's read the text together out of Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32 to the end there. It says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy, sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to, the destruction, to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, again we thank you, again we acknowledge you, and we acknowledge our need of you. We know, Lord, that you are glorified in man's dependence. And so we ask, Lord, as humble and needy children, feed us, O Lord. Speak to us and grant spiritual nourishment, encouragement, spiritual fortification for your people. That every family, every person, every believer, this church will go home strengthened by the meat of Scripture. Father, we pray that you would be glorified, magnified in all that is said and done. Give me the grace to speak. Give me the grace to... Rightly divide your word and give the grace to the hearers, not only to listen, but to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We've arrived here to the last section on what I have entitled, Enduring to the End. And what we're going to be looking at today is what we could call the gospel of the book of Hebrews. The gospel of the book of Hebrews. And 
The reason I say that is because we're going to get different components of the overall message of Hebrews because here the author of Hebrews is summing everything up, up to this point at least. But you know, earlier in the context of this whole section, the author focused on the remembrance of faith, the previous faith. Remember verses 32, 34, pointing the believer to recall what had happened in their salvation so that they can have present endurance. And then in verses 35 and 36, the author then turned to faith in the future, the future reward, so that the believer would have ongoing, or excuse me, would have present endurance in the present trials that they found, they found themselves in. Here, he turns to their faith in the future reward, again now, for ongoing endurance, but also so that the believers would not shrink away in unbelief. There it is. Unbelief is the supreme peril of the Christian life. Mark that down, underline it, memorize it, and sear it into your conscience. Unbelief, wavering and unbelief, is the great enemy of our souls. That's why the author of Hebrews says, be careful, brethren, that there is not in any of you a evil, unbelieving heart departing from the living God. Therefore, the author of Hebrews here again is admonishing us in light of apostasy. We're going to see that. But he does this in a special way. That's why I say he does it in such a way that he, he, he sets forth different principles of what I've called the gospel according to Hebrews. And the first aspect of that is this. The gospel according to Hebrews is an eschatological gospel. You can see that by the conflation of two texts that he uses by quoting the Old Testament, namely verses 37 and 38, which is a combination of a citation out of Isaiah 26 and a combination out of Habakkuk chapter 2. He uses both Old Testament texts to communicate one ultimate truth. Let's read it again. Verse 37 says, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. You hear, the, you hear the urgency in that. And that's why I say it's eschatological because there is a tinge of urgency. I tell you what, the Christian life is an, is an urgent life. Did I just cut out? Okay, sorry. I don't know why I'm, I'm apologizing. I just thought I should. Okay, all right. It's urgent. See how urgent it is? I've got to get this out before the batteries die. The prophets lived with this state of urgency. The apostles lived with this state of urgency. Jesus preached a state of urgency. You know not when the master returns. There is this sense of that every church and every generation and every age, so to speak, is to live with the eschaton hanging over us. This impending time of the coming. So what he does is he takes a passage out of Habakkuk that had to do with a prophetic vision of judgment that was looming over the, the enemies of Israel, and, and, and that prophetic vision is now personified in the person of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So he's saying is that there was a redemptive historical function of the prophecy of the book of Habakkuk that is now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the judgment that was coming in the days of Habakkuk was just a symbol. It was just an emblem. It was just a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the future final 
cataclysmic judgment of God at the second coming, and that is what the second coming will be. How sobering, how daunting, how, how, how just soul-riveting to know that what we're longing for as believers, and I say longing on the presupposition of the end of chapter 9 of Hebrews, where it says that we are eagerly awaiting Him, but that in that awaiting, we are also awaiting a time of judgment. As Thessalonians says, it will be a time of retribution where God is going to repay the enemies who have persecuted the church. I say that as an aside. But on a personal level, uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. On a personal note, the Apostle Paul, he, he lived his own life this way. He lived his life, as it were, with one foot in this world and one foot in the next. He lived his life with the, the overshadowing of the final day of judgment, the, the, the great judgment seat of Christ looming over his head, following him wherever he went, analyzing every aspect of his ministry. He knew his life was an offering. He knew that his life was also being scrutinized by the eye of God and that one day he would have to give an account for everything that he ever did. Look with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, that's each one of us, brothers and sisters, not, not the wicked, each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. You see, we're, this is what makes the Christian life urgent. This is why Christianity cannot be lived in cruise control. This is why our spirituality, this is why our spiritual walk, this is why the condition of our heart every single day is of ultimate imperative. We have to be watchful. That's why the, uh, the Apostle Peter said, be sober in prayer in all things. Why? Because we know that everything that we do spiritually in this life will have some sort of eternal consequence. Do you live your life that way? Are you, are you planning your life that way? Do you have vision for your life that way with an eschatological vision? Now, don't get me wrong. In 1 Corinthians, there is a counterbalance because in 1 Corinthians, there were those that were living an overrealized eschatology. They thought, this, they thought the return, in a sense, already came. The kingdom had already been fully realized, so much so that they were even going to the extent that they no longer even saw the need for marriage. No, 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 no. It's not calling us to an over-realized eschatology, but it is calling us to some sort of inaugurated eschatology where we do, uh, uh, we, we do see ourselves in light of eternity right now. It's really amazing. I tell you what, this will purify your life like nothing else. And so the author of Hebrews is saying he's taking that entire eschatological idea and he's bearing it down upon the faith of the believer. And he's saying, why do you endure? Why do you need endurance? Why do you need to suffer and do the will of God? Because in a very little while, He is coming. You see that? That's what makes it all worth it. Oh, it's going to be so worth it. I can't communicate it to you enough how worth it it's going to be. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 19 when the disciple says, Lord, behold, we have lost everything to follow you. Remember, they're trying to impress them, impress him with their great sacrifice that they've done for him. And what did Jesus say? No, 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 no. You can never outgive God. 
You will never outdo God. You will never out-sacrifice God. You will never lay down enough for God. You will never out-suffer God in the sense of your suffering will never outweigh the weight of glory that is coming to you. Jesus said it will be repaid back to you hundredfold, sixtyfold. You know how it goes, the whole, all the folds. In other words, treasure, reward, compensation for every, ta- every trial, every suffering that is in keeping with the will of God. Now, don't get me wrong. If you suffer for your own foolishness, the Apostle Peter says that as well. But what good is it to you? That's what it says. What good is it to you if you suffer for your own foolishness? Look, if you go out breaking the law and you suffer, well, I don't, don't, don't say, oh, poor me as a Christian, I'm suffering and being persecuted for my faith. No, 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 no. These present sufferings, these present afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the great reward that will be given to us at the eschaton. It's an amazing thing, the coming of Christ. It is the summing up of all things. It is the ushering in of a, of a new heavens and a new earth. It is the doing away of the old world and a new world will come. It's amazing. The second coming is all determining. You know, for a minute here, if you would, just... Uh, uh, look down at the phrase here, for a little while, because that's, that's coming directly out of uh, Isaiah 26, verses 20 to 21. The author uses that little phrase, a little while, and he mixes it with Habakkuk chapter 2, where it talks about the fact that we, the righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What's going on there? Well, both of those contexts are contexts of impending judgment, impending doom. Now, Isaiah's context in Isaiah 25 and 26 is really interesting because what we have in front of us there really is the tale of two cities. You have in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 2, you have the cities of men. You have the cities of sin, the godly, godless cities of man that are described as the cities of ruthless nations that God will lay waste and then you have, as it were, the city of God in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1. You have the strong city that God is going to give to everyone who does what? Remains faithful. You see now why he used the Isaiah, the Isaiah passage? He uses the, 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 this, that little phrase in a little while to bring the urgency out of Isaiah and to show us something like the Isaiah urgency is happening here, but only greater. We're not talking about the invasion of an evil nation. We are talking about the coming of Christ. We're talking about the final judgment. Jesus in the Bible is called the coming one. That's what he is. In his first coming, Jesus came in weakness as an offering for sin. In his second coming, he's going to come in power. No longer, as Hebrew says, no longer as an offering for sin, no longer to deal with sin, but to not only secure redemption, but to apply redemption to us. We can stay on this issue of eschatology for the entirety of our time, but we have to move on to another aspect of the gospel of Hebrews, and that is that the gospel of Hebrews is all about the gospel of faith alone. Notice how we in our Christian life are to live. It says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Now, if you are sort of hearing Pauline theology in your mind, 
Of course, you know that in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul quotes this exact passage out of Habakkuk, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, uh, to substantiate the theology of justification by faith. But is that what Hebrews is doing here? No. Hebrews does not have in its foresight uh, justification by faith alone. That is not what he's really using this for. What he's using faith here in this context is for the purpose of perseverance. What does that show us? What that shows us is that Scripture can speak of faith as operative both on the basis of a forensic justification and at the same time being applied to a practical sanctification. In other words, it is by faith from start to finish. You do not begin by faith. You do not get in by faith. And then you keep yourself by works. No, dear friends. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith. And uh, uh, that word to walk literally means to conduct your life. The conduct of our life, our sanctification, is lived out by faith. 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 Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In other words, the gospel according to Hebrews is telling us that it is, it is impossible not only to become a Christian by faith, it is also impossible to live a Christian life that is worthy apart from faith in God's promises. So that unbelief is not only an infringement on the attributes of God, it's also an infringement on the Word of God. Unbelief doubts who God is and doubts what God has promised. I tell you what, this is why I began by talking about the importance of unbelief and how, cru- how crucial it is to overcome it. Unbelief has always been a key failure in the history of God's people. Let me read to you two Old Testament texts. You can write it down, jot it down, or look it up later. Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, listen to what this says. The Lord said to Moses, this is what God thinks of unbelief in his people. How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. On a practical level, don't we identify with the generation of Israel there? God has done so many things in your life and mine. And yet, sometimes all it takes is the threat of a paycheck not coming this week. And your whole faith is up in evil. You're, 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 you're walking on eggshells. The whole, you're, you're, the whole, your whole soul is unsettled because of one little trial. And yet God has been faithful time after time in all the many signs that He has given us regarding His great faithfulness. Numbers 20, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed Me. See how crucial faith is to entreat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. What is that saying? Moses was forbidden to go into Canaan because of unbelief. Now, 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 now is Moses not saved? Of course he's saved. <laughs> is Moses losing his salvation here? Of course not. But Moses has lost certain privileges because of unbelief. 
In other words, he has lost the blessings that were to be given to him had he been faithful to the end and believed God. And so we too can suffer loss after loss after loss in our faith if we do not believe God and trust God and keep our, our trust in Him alive. Next, because this is so connected to the next point, and that is that the gospel of Hebrews is the gospel of perseverance. The gospel of per- And I only say that because of this. Look at the next phrase there in verse 38. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Isn't that interesting? What is the language of shrinking back? The idea of shrinking back is speaking, it's just a metaphor of unbelief, of recoiling within yourself, in your own consciousness, in your own heart. You retract your faith. You retract your trust. Like Peter standing on the water, he retracted his faith. He came out with a childlike faith, took Jesus' hands, but next thing you know, he's sinking into the water because he's he began to falter in unbelief. But here's the deal. It says, don't shrink back, which means that in the context of this passage, the shrinking back is connected to the concept of suffering and persecution. So what I want to do is I want to connect it to several things. So persevering is to persevere in the light of several important things Hebrews has already given us. Number one, and these are things, these are points, I had to develop these because this is where we live. (laughs) These points right here, this is our life every day, and this is the way it's going to be for the rest of our lives in the faith. Number one, you must persevere under the threat of trial. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes among you, excuse me, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, we've heard this from me time and time again. John 16:33. Trials are promised, tribulations will come, crushing is going to come. You're going, to get the, the, you're going to get the phone call from work, from the doctor, from the school. You're going, to get, you're going to get the bad news. You're going to get the diagnosis. You're going to turn on the television, and you're going, to see, you're going to see the threat coming. The next thing is that you have to persevere under persecution. Now, this is where we're coming really into the exegesis of Hebrews. Look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, because this is the immediate context. This is a pastor speaking to a church or churches that are experiencing persecution. Remember the former days after being enlightened? You endured a great conflict of sufferings. I just want to point out quickly that sufferings there is then fleshed out in persecution language, which means this that when you speak of suffering, it includes persecution, and persecution includes suffering. It's just part of it. It says, partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. There is a, there's a, a social consciousness that's happening here where they're being mistreated. They're being ridiculed. They're being made a public spectacle. The language there of a public spectacle, remember, it speaks of a person being brought up on a theater to be paraded like a fool. And Christians want to be cool. And the Bible says, get ready to be paraded like a fool. 
in the eyes of the world. That's what Christianity will get you if you remain faithful to the gospel. Well, if you compromise, you can go anywhere, do anything, get on any platform, speak to any celebrity or get on any talk show or any news channel you want, just as long as you don't hold to your convictions too tightly. No, no, no. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I got a lot to say about that. Public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated What courage it must have took for these Christians to stay connected to people that were physically suffering for the faith. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an enduring one or a lasting one. We have to persevere under the threat of persecution. And you may say, well, I think we're kind of safe. I mean, after all, we're in Texas. Everybody has a gun at home. Well, maybe that's not the way the persecution is going to work out. I think something more sinister is at work in our own day, and we have to acknowledge it. John MacArthur recently, speaking at a conservative political convention, gave a great sermon on, on, on when and how a God gives a nation over. I mean, it was really a riveting message. I took one phrase out of the whole sermon, and I'll say it to you now, a paraphrase at least. John MacArthur says, speaking about Romans 1, a culture that is given over by God begins with a sexual revolution, which leads to a homosexual revolution, and that leads to a reprobate mind that is no longer able to constrain its depravity. And that's exactly where we are. And where is that going to show itself? Target? Maybe. Do you like sports? I love sports. You get, you get me talking about uh, basketball and, you know, watch out. But the NBA just announced that they are moving the All-Star game scheduled for next year out of Charlotte, North Carolina for one simple reason. You know about this, right? Charlotte, North Carolina has a law, HB2, that says a grown man that wants to dress in a dress, put on a dress and go into a women's bathroom is not allowed to do that. And the NBA is saying, unless a man is allowed to do that, we're yanking millions of dollars that will otherwise help the economic state of that city. We're taking all our funds, all our resources, all our advertisement, all the shopping, everything that's going to happen. We're, we're pulling out of town unless you allow men to share a bathroom with women, with children. Folks, have we lost our mind? This is what MacArthur says. Sexual revolution leading to a homosexual revolution. We've been there for a long time. And now the inability to constrain its depravity. And that's where we are. And story after story, boy, on Red Grace Media, I make Brother Robert Reese post these awful stories of people in dressing rooms at Target and at other places going in, transgenders going in, faking it, taking, you know, pictures of little girls in dressing rooms and bathrooms for their own perverted reasons. And in New York City, a transgender person went in there and raped another person, raped a woman. (laughs) Folks, and, and our nation is saying that is good and right, and unless you accept that, unless you bow the knee to that and call it good, you will not be socially accepted. I was watching these these sports analysts talk about this issue. It was despicable to listen to it. 
Oh, I'm so glad they're pulling out. Oh, it just shows how smart the NBA. Oh, the commissioner of the NBA, he is so progressive and so wonderful and gets everything so right. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So as you can tell, I can jump up and down on this all day. But it's just, a, just, a, just maybe a foreshadowing of maybe what's coming and how and with what angle. But there's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. Nothing new under the sun. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Same type of eschatological idea, same type of context, same type of persecution and oppression, and same type of call to endure. 1 Peter 4.3, For the time already passed sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation. ESPN is surprised, shocked, utterly appalled that anyone would stand up and say, it's not okay for my daughter to share a bathroom with a grown man. I don't care how much lipstick he has on. It's not okay. And they are shocked, and they are surprised, and they are so deluded, and they are so given over by a reprobate mind, or to a reprobate mind. God has put his stamp of disapproval on that type of culture. I tell you what, in chapter 11, much that will be said there is going to be a call for us modern 21st century, 21st century American Christians in a modern, modern, modern world to follow ancient people in their example. Are you ready? Look at Hebrews 11:13. All of these people died in faith without receiving the promises. Hebrews 11:13. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I tell you what, if I was sitting at that panel at ESPN in that conversation, I'd feel like a stranger in an exile. And I, wouldn't, I, couldn't, even wait, I couldn't wait to speak, too. <laughs> but I'd feel like a stranger. I'd be, I'd be the odd man out. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, their original country, like Irv Chaldees, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and for He has prepared a city for them. I tell you what, when everyone around you is ashamed of you for standing up for the Christian worldview and Christian ethics, you can smile and lift your head knowing that God is not ashamed of you. He approves of you and he is building a city far greater than any liberal city that they're going to move the NBA game to. <laughs> what a glorious, glorious, expectant hope we have. But it's not just about persevering under the threat of apostasy. That's an external threat. But it's also internal in the sense of 
we are to persevere under the threat of apostasy. So we go back, we go from the world back into the world of our own heart to know that what God desires of us there is that we do not shrink away. How do you know that you will not shrink away in unbelief? I can give you the best, I can give you the best advice in the whole world, and here it is. Don't shrink away. Pursue. Don't worry about shrinking away. Pursue. Instead of being on the defensive end of things in your faith, be offensive. Get involved. Serve. Evangelize. Study the Bible. Pray. Fellowship. But if you have an aversion to those things, you'd have been very leery of your own heart because the Word of God is not mocked. You cannot, you cannot subtract the means of grace from your life and expect that you are going to have a comfortable walk with God. You'd be very on edge if you know that in your heart of hearts, you are quite comfortable removing yourself from the means of grace. That's a recipe for disaster. Lastly, the perseverance is perseverance under the threat of judgment. Because apostasy is not an end of itself. Apostasy is a means to a more dreadful end, which is judgment. My righteous one will live by faith, but if he shrinks back... My soul has no pleasure in him. For God to have no pleasure in a person is synonymous with God rejecting a person so that you're not accepted. It's the language of election. When God elects, for example, in Isaiah 42, when God elects his son as his servant of the covenant, when he chooses Israel or when he chooses a person, God is determining to set his love, to set his affection, to set his pleasure, his goodness, his approval on that person. But the fact that a person apostatizes and abandons the faith, goes out from among us because he were never of us, what that shows is that, in fact, God has rejected that person. And there it is. And there it has to stay. With God being absolutely sovereign over all things, but that in no way whatsoever gives us any right to live our lives in a fatalistic fashion, thinking, oh, well, what will be will be. No, absolutely not. There is a means to the end of God's sovereign purposes. Work out your salvation in fear, in trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do. That's the tension of the Christian life. Finally, I know I've said that twice. That, that was about subpoints. Back to the main stuff. The gospel of Hebrews is also the gospel of assurance. Oh, how sweet the word of God. Because we go from a place of true, dreadful, miserable judgment. The rejection of God. No pleasure in, God takes no pleasure in someone. How dreadful the thought of that. And then the counterbalance is sweet assurance. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Praise the Lord. Amen. But we are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So there it is. We are not of those. So I would argue that this text is in league with all the 
the, the warnings and, and apostasy passages in the book of Hebrews, and it's all one consistent theology from beginning to end. Just going back to chapter 6, with those who, for whom it is impossible to renew to repentance, it's because they never had genuine repentance, and they have gone to a place of reprobate. But it says, I have better things concerning you, things that actually accompany salvation. Same thing with this. Be warned. Be leery. If you shrink back, God has no pleasure in you. But, look at verse 39, this is what's known as a strong adversative conjunction. But, which means there's a, there's, he slams on the brakes. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Can you have hope? Can you have assurance? Not if you look to your heart. Not if you look to your own performance. Not if you look to yourself. What do the Puritans used to say? One look to self, ten looks to Christ. Look at Christ. Focus on God. Focus on hope in Him. Hope in His, the strength of His grace. Trust utterly in Him. Abandon yourself to faith in Him and you will be secure. I have too much more to say. I better close my notes. <laughs> Who is it going to be that perseveres to the end in our generation? It's going to be the person who's intolerant. Just preparing you. It's going to be a person who's not moving on with the times. It's going to be the person who's not open-minded enough. It's, it's going to be the person who's too outdated, old-fashioned, fundamentalist, narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful, homophobe, xenophobe, Islamophobe, you name it. It's going to be the person that refuses to become ecumenical. It's going to be the person who refuses to work with Rome under the blanket of the gospel. That's why I'm in a Reformed church. I don't want to work with Rome because the Rome has no gospel. That's how it's going to begin, compromises like that. Being willing to accept the reproaches of Christ as greater wealth than the riches of Israel, or the, the riches of Egypt, the wealth of Egypt. Re refusing and rejecting or refusing to be identified as Pharaoh's daughter. That is just code for the place of social privilege. That's okay. We don't need that. We have a greater city and a lasting one. You can have this one with the earthquakes, the atomic bombs, the terrorists, <laughs> the diseases, Zika. You can keep this one. We'll take the one that's coming. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, keep us right there, preferring the riches of Jesus Christ than anything that this world has to offer us. Oh, Lord, and let us find our true sustenance and satisfaction there. You are the all-satisfying God, and your gospel is the all-satisfying gospel. Sustain us. Preserve us. We can't preserve ourselves. So we ask, oh God, keep us in your name, even as you said there in John 17. Keep us in your name. Keep us faithful. When we are faithless, God, we confess you remain faithful. And we're so grateful for these passages on assurance that we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, that we are those who, if you began a good work, you're going to finish it in Christ Jesus to the last day. Thank you.
Encourage your people. Give us strength and boldness this week to look up to the heavenly city, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Help us to look for that country, the lasting city. Thank you, Father. Encourage your people now in Jesus' name. Amen.